The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Last Sunday was communion, and for communion as a general rule, I prefer to focus the preaching and all of the sermon on remembering Christ's death. And that's why this Sunday, in a sense to me, feels like my inaugural Sunday preaching with you through the regular exposition of a book of the Bible. So today I want to begin by sharing why I believe God has brought me and my family here. A few years ago, God began to work through his word in my heart in ways that were frankly a little bit frightening to me. I was reading Jonah chapter 4 verse 11, and God said to Jonah, Should I not pity that city, Nineveh, that great city? And he didn't mean great in terms of virtue. (laughs) He meant great in terms of population and density. So he said, should I not pity that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? God was keeping track of densely populated areas that needed to know the true gospel. Then I read Mark 6, verse 34. Jesus rather similarly said that when he saw the great, same word, crowds, he was moved to compassion because they were like sheep who had no shepherd. Now those two passages started to work on my heart. The Spirit started to burden me about those two passages in a way that was scary. It was scary because I knew that that might mean that God was calling me to move to a place of great density and gospel need. Now, during that time, I was a student working on my doctorate at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and that meant I was in this area, and so I would fly from Detroit to RDU, and from RDU, I'd hail an Uber to Wake Forest, and in those Uber drives, I kept meeting people, many of whom were not born in this country or were not originally from Raleigh, and I would ask them about the area. What's going on in this area? What have you observed in your time here? And they would tell me how much the area had changed and how much it had grown, normally Lamentably so, they were sharing how much it had all changed in their lifetime and in their time here. So as a student, in the few times we had a break from school, (laughs) we would go out to dinner and we'd walk the area. And I remember walking the NC State campus at this time, not knowing anything about Emmanuel Baptist Church, but just noticing all the people from all over the nations that God was bringing to this area. And those verses kept coming back in my mind. Should I not have pity on that? great city? Should I not notice the great crowds in which there are sheep who have no shepherd? And God started to burden me, particularly for the area that I was in, the Raleigh area. Now then, fast forward a little bit, in God's good providence, he brings me here to candidate at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And so Sunday, June 7th, I'm noticing this area now a little bit in proximity to some of the things that I've been burdened about and praying for. Now that morning, I I opened my Bible to read. I had been reading through the Bible with my family from Genesis all the way through, and we were in Numbers. So that morning, I opened Numbers 22 and 23, and in God's good providence, if you know what those passages are, that's where Balaam is on his way, and he's riding a donkey, and the donkey talks to him and tells him to turn back three times because God doesn't want him going there. And, And eventually, God opens Balaam's eyes to see what the donkey saw, that there was a sword standing there 
being held by an angel who was going to kill Balaam if he did not turn around. So the angel rebukes Balaam and says, you should have listened to your donkey. So here I am in my hotel room, not very far from here. And I just prayed to the Lord, Lord, if there is any reason I should not come to Emmanuel Baptist Church, then open my eyes so that I will not come here. But if you want me to come here so that the sheep without a shepherd can be reached, so that the great crowds can come to know Jesus Christ, then I pray you'd make that clear to me. And so on Sunday, June 7th, I preached the gospel, thinking if we have that in common, then we can move forward. But the whole time in the back of my mind was a talking donkey. (laughs) I was picturing a computer animated talking donkey. (laughs) It was difficult to preach under those circumstances, but the Lord used it. And then as you know, as a congregation with such overwhelming uh, agreement, made clear a prayer of mine in a hotel room by myself in the dark. God, would you make it clear? And he made it abundantly clear, praise God. So I believe that I'm here to do what God has burdened me to do so that North Carolina State University, so that the Five Points community, so that the Raleigh area would be seen as sheep without a shepherd and be reached by the good shepherd for his glory. But I'm in Philippians this morning because that's not why God has brought just me here. That's why all of us are here. We're here in 2020 in the midst of, yes, a pandemic in the Raleigh area so that we can partner to advance the gospel. Now, the title of my sermon series is Partnership in the Gospel, but I didn't choose that title because that's just what I wanted to say. I'm convinced that's the message of the book of Philippians. And so my prayer is that each week as we work through it, we will become more and more convinced this is what God has brought us here to do together, to partner to advance the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this week, Krista emailed you the sermon notes. So right now, if you want to take out your phone and find your sermon notes, and if you didn't find the email, I trust you know at this point that if it's an email pertaining to me, it's in the rest of your junk email. (laughs) So pull that open this morning, follow along. Lord willing, in the future, that'll be available for anyone. Um, we'll just have it downloadable from our website. But, but for now, try and pull it up. If you don't have it, that's okay. I, I'll try to preach very clearly. The title is Partnership in the Gospel. There are two big points this morning. Praise God, the gospel forms the church. And secondly, praise God, the gospel unites the church. So if you have your phone, you can follow along. Otherwise, just take notes and we'll do our best to clearly expose what God has written. So here we're in Philippians chapter one, verse one. If you're watching at home, you can look at the notes there as well. So Philippians one, verse one. And in verses one and two, it's gonna explain, praise God, the gospel forms the church. So now verse one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now don't just jump over that. Here are people that when they know the love of God for them in Christ Jesus, it so changes their identity and purpose, they now refer to themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. Should not all of us as Christians do so? So if Christ has so rescued me, then I can only describe myself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Therefore, the gospel shapes my identity and purpose. In fact, this is applicable to all of us, so the verse continues, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. I've 
followed many scholars who have argued correctly, in my opinion, that in the Bible, if you read a city, it's a local church. If you read a region, it may be multiple congregations. Here is a city, I believe, a local church. So here is the saints at a local assembly in Philippi. Our very description is relationship to the gospel. Now notice the verse continues, with the overseers and deacons. Now what do these words mean? The word overseer is used in the New Testament interchangeably with the word elder and the word pastor. There are three Greek words that are used interchangeably. The word overseer, the one used here in verse one, is the word episkopos. Of course, it's where we get our term episcopalian. Then the Greek word poimen, which is used, is the word pastor or shepherd. It means to lead the church. Then the other word, presbyteros, that's where we get our word Presbyterian, it's also where we get our word president or preside, is the word elder. Now these three terms are used in the Bible interchangeably to refer to the very same office. So if you're in Acts 20, Paul will write to the elders and he'll encourage them to shepherd the flock and to oversee it. My favorite passage is 1 Peter 5, where Peter writes as a fellow elder to other elders, and in verse 2 he says, shepherd the flock and exercise oversight. All right, so all three terms refer to exactly the same office. Then we have the word deacon. So if the word overseer means, of course, to oversee, to shepherd the congregation and to preside over it in spiritual nurturing, then the word deacon is a more practical office, to serve the church through those sorts of uh, acts of service that bind the congregation together. So are there more offices than these two? This is a question sometimes we have among churches. Should we add other offices to help oversee churches? Sometimes it's a question we have within our church. We're gonna have a ministry conference tonight. How many offices should we have? Should we add more offices? Uh, The Baptist Faith and Message hammers this out for us a little bit in 2000 when it's rights. The scriptural officers for a church are pastors and deacons. There are only two officers, which is really helpful, so we know how the gospel forms the church and how it's led. Now, I want you to notice how many people are in the offices. Did you notice the words are both plural? To the overseers, plural, and deacons, plural. So we have at least precedent here that a New Testament church is led by two officers who are plural in number. If you're ever having a very hard time sleeping, in seminary I wrote a 27-page paper that I guarantee you will put you out. (laughs) And it is on the plurality of elders in a single local church. So I could give you a lot of technical information that you don't need unless you really are struggling with insomnia. But short of that, I just want you to notice that God expects his church to be led by a plurality because that helps to serve the church collectively because each of us individually have short-sightedness. I know I do. Now, should we think of the elders, overseers and pastors and deacons, should we think of them as like somehow outside of the rest of the congregation? No, notice verse one. It says to the saints in Christ Jesus with the overseers. The word with is very important. This helps me as a pastor to remember that as a congregant, I am with you. I'm not outside of you as someone who's disconnected, who speaks to something I'm not involved with. No, I'm with you. We are a congregation together. Now that's all verse one. 
Verse 2 continues to describe the manner of a congregation, how the gospel forms it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel forms the church, number one. Now number two, praise God, the gospel unites the church. And now we're going to read a wonderful prayer of the Apostle Paul for the local church at Philippi. And in that prayer, he thanks God that the gospel unites the church. And if you have your notes in front of you, he's going to do that in three ways, A, B, and C. The partnership the gospel gives, letter A. The assurance the gospel gives, letter B. And learning to love like the gospel teaches us to love, letter C. So now letter A, partners in the gospel. Now verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Paul comes close to saying you all there. (laughs) Making my prayer with joy. Paul here now thanks them every time he remembers them for a specific reason. It's not just general gratitude. It's gratitude for something specific. Here it is in verse 5. I'm grateful for this. Your partnership in the gospel. This is the theme of the book. He's going to return to it over and over and over and over in the book. We're partners in the gospel. We're partners in the gospel. The Greek word is koinonia. Some of the old translations put fellowship. And I'm so glad we don't have the word fellowship now because words change meaning over time. And as Baptists, we hear the word fellowship. We think of food. We think of nothing else. But the word is partnership, and that's an important word because it means we've linked arms to do something. What is it that we've linked arms to do? The New Testament scholar Gordon Fee helps explain that the word koinonia means participation in the spread of the gospel. It's not just partnership that we share a truth. It's partnership that we share a mission to declare that truth. See, it's partnership in the gospel's advance. Now let me stop us here. The word partnership means more than one, right? So if he thanks God for their partnership in the gospel, it means they're all doing it together. I've learned as a pastor this is very important. At times people in the church will say, Pastor, but that's what you're here to do, (laughs) right? But it's good for us to remember, no, no, that's what we're here to do. So then I could never blame you and say, hey, that's your thing. And you could never say, no, that's your thing. No, brothers and sisters, this is our thing. The partnership in the gospel is not a solo work. It's not a me project. It's a we project. In fact, Jesus gave the Great Commission to the disciples together on the mount. Go together and make disciples. You see, Great Commission is a team effort. The gospel is not solo work. Now, I will grant you this. You can swell the size of a congregation based on the charisma of an individual, but that's not gospel growth. That's just giftedness that draws a crowd. If we, as a congregation, will see the Raleigh area reached, it will require us to partner together. Partnership puts our differences aside, because we have a singular goal that unites us, partnering to advance the gospel. I love the way our Constitution says it here at Emmanuel. Proclaim the gospel, reflect the kingdom. Or as I like to say it, delight in Jesus, display Jesus, declare Jesus. This is our partnership. This is what God has called us to do. Now it is the theme of the book. 
Perhaps you've read a commentary or two that argues that the theme of Philippians is joy. But that's a little bit like saying that Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is a story about a song. (laughs) It takes one word and presses it outside of the context of what's actually happening. This is a book about partnership in the gospel. Gordon Fee notes that many people love the book of Philippians because of all of its quotable lines. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Who doesn't know those phrases? Or my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We know so many wonderful phrases in Philippians, but if you ask the average believer, what is the book about? A blank draws over their face. All those wonderful phrases that we'll get to in time are part of a coherent whole. The book of Philippians is about partnering to advance the gospel. Thus, it's a wonderful book for us right now. Which leads to this implicit question, what is the gospel? In literature, if you're studying narrative, they'll teach you some fun words. One of the words they'll teach you is synecdoche, or metonymy. A synecdoche is when you use a word to represent an entire group of things because that word is so associated with it. You might say, what's the news from the White House? And you're referring to all that's going on in Washington, D.C. and branches of government. Or if you join the Navy, your admiral may yell out, all hands on deck, and he's not expecting anyone to amputate anything. <laughs> he means, bring your body up here. It's a synecdoche. Now, Paul uses several synecdoches for the gospel. He loves doing this. And he uses different ones in different letters. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he uses the word cross as a synecdoche for the whole gospel. And do you know what word he uses in Philippians? It's my favorite. Christ. When he says, for me to live is Christ, he means all that goes into the gospel. This is why I love this synecdoche in particular. Because if someone was to ask you, what does it mean to be saved. What is the gospel? I always love to go to John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, Jesus said, that you would know me. You see, the gospel is about a person, and it's not just to know about him, it's to know him. The gospel is to have a relationship with Jesus. You see, the gospel is a relational message. We lost our relationship with God in the garden because our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has caused us to not have peace within, but also to not have peace with Him. But see, Jesus came to pay and put away our sins so that He could, 1 Peter 3.18 says, bring us to God. The just suffered for the unjust to restore a relationship. See, the gospel tells us not just a what, it tells us a whom. The person we most need. So rejoice through the book of Philippians. We're going to see why the gospel crystallizes in the person of Jesus Christ. But how do you know? How do you know if you know Jesus? How do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if you have the gospel? There was a a friend of ours who once gave us one of those coat trees, you know, the coat hanger hooks, and uh, I really like them. They have like an old school kind of feel. And so we set it up in our house and we would hang our coats on it. We just moved to the South. Let me tell you, in Michigan in the winter, you have heavy coats that you're hanging on that thing. And so we would hang our coats on that thing and it had three legs on the bottom, like like a tripod base, and one leg broke off. And my wife said, throw it away. And I said, I'm cheap, we're not throwing it away. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I got wood glue and I wood glued the one leg and it would stay and in certain parts of the winter it would lean and, and, and fall over. So she eventually said, you need to put a better coat hanging system. And like a good husband, I waited about two years. <laughs> and then we got this really nice metal thing and I got anchors in it and each anchor could hold like 100 pounds and I screwed it in the wall and that thing could hang anything. So the one metal thing, you could hang anything you wanted on it. The tripod that leaned a lot with the wood glue, you could only hang so much. Now, I say all that to say this. In Scripture, when we are asked the question, how can I know that I know Jesus? How can I know that I'm saved? Scripture gives us two hooks to hang our soul's confidence on. One of them is immovable. It's like metal anchors. It'll never fail you. The other one is like my tripod. It's, it's a little more wobbly. Now, you need both hooks. The first hook is the promise and person of God. You hang all your confidence on it, and it's unshakable. The other hook is my subjective experience that I am a child of God. Now, you need both, but that one is more wobbly. The scriptures tell us that if you're a Christian, in your heart, you will cry out, Abba, Father. There will be a sense within you that you know God. But there are times as a Christian our feelings can delude us. And that's why the heavier hook is the one you put all your soul on. Now here's the heavier hook, brothers and sisters. Look in verse 6. Hang your heaviest coat on this one. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Is that not great news? Hang your heaviest coat on this one. When you feel good, when you feel bad, God is still God and he cannot fail and he will keep his promises. But you also do need the lighter hook. There needs to be times that in your life you feel that God is at work in you. Notice now verse 7. Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. So here's what Paul is saying. I have confidence that you're saved because of the heavy hook. God will keep his promise. But I also have confidence you're saved because of the lighter hook. You have evidence of grace in that you stood by me in my defense of the gospel. So how you live can demonstrate that God is at work in you but you have to have the heavier hook underneath it. Verse eight, for God is my witness. How I learn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now this theme of two hooks will come up many times in Philippians. Think of Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why, what's the heavier hook? God is at work in you. Now rejoice, Christian. You will make it to the end because God will get you there but you will experience that as he works in you in the present. Both hooks are at work. D.A. Carson writes, a real Christian on the long haul sticks. He or she perseveres. There may be ups and downs. There may be special victories or temporal defeats, but precisely because the one who began a good work in us completes it, real Christians will stick. Now, when, when you're moving, you have to make decisions about all sorts of stuff, and I already admitted I'm cheap, so we stuffed everything we could in the truck. <laughs> and one of the things I got out recently that I'm not sure what to do with yet is a kayak. I love kayaking. I have no idea where I'm going to kayak here. My son already tried putting it in the pool. <laughs> we can't use it there. If you know of a place we can use it, let me know. But in Michigan, I found a narrow river we could kayak, and while we were kayaking that river, I learned something very important. 
if you want to kayak to your home, go with the current. <laughs> Start where the river takes you with it. And while I was kayaking one day, it clicked in my head, ah, this is how the gospel works. As a Christian, you sit in the gospel and you steer and you pedal, but you make it home because the current gets you there. You see, he who began a good work in you will complete it. That doesn't mean you never paddle. It doesn't mean you never steer. It means the grace beneath your wings is the very hand of God himself. And he will finish what he started in you. And you will get to enjoy it in real time. This passage then is extremely encouraging. We're partners in the gospel and we're assured by the gospel. But now let her see, we learn to love through the gospel. Verses nine through 11 are one sentence in the Greek. One big, long, dangerously close to run on sentence. Verse nine, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I think that sentence has seven elements and some commentators have helped me with it and I've tried to rewrite them in my own words, but here's what I want you to notice up front. Love is being described in verses nine and 11. That is not the way our culture describes the word love. So we have a danger when we read these verses. Because we're told in our culture, a lie. We're told that love affirms anything that anyone wants to do. We are falsely told that love tolerates and accepts anything indiscriminately and celebrates everyone's right to choose their own truth. Now, of course, this is balderdash fantasy. In reality, if someone pushed you over this afternoon and stole your purse or your wallet, you would not affirm their choice. <laughs> you would not celebrate their truth, nor would it be loving to do so. Yet the obvious reality of love necessitating discernment is one that in our culture, our ears are no longer capable of easily hearing. See, even as Christians, the muscle that we should have exercised that love is discernment is starting to atrophy. Is it love to delight in what is wrong? Is it love to yawn when something actually is lovely? It's good and beautiful and true. See, our text today reminds us that love must be discerning. Let me illustrate this. When I was a kid, my uh, parents would make me eat everything on my plate. And there was one specific item they wanted me to eat that I could not eat. It was green peas. I'm sorry if you like them. <laughs> I don't. I remember hours sitting at the table with green peas waiting on my plate, and I didn't want to eat them. So one time as a very young child, rather precociously, I did some research. And I learned through my scientific research that your taste buds change while you age. Between the age of 40 and 50, your taste buds decrease. And as you get older, your mass in your tongue starts to shrink and lose some operation. And you may lose the ability to distinguish between sweet, salty, sour, and bitter foods. And so I remember sitting there after hours of being unable to eat my peas. And I remember saying to my dad, Dad, I think these things taste really bad. 
You think they taste really good, but maybe that's because you're old. <laughs> my argument did not go well. <laughs> Needless to say, I sat until I ate all my peas. <laughs> but the premise of my argument was this. Perhaps what you're calling good is actually bad. Perhaps you're not discerning correctly. Now in my case, it was literally a matter of taste, preference. But when we're talking about truth, it is not a matter of taste. It is not a matter of preference. In fact, did you know that you have to affirm truth to deny it? <laughs> when someone says there is no absolute truth, are you absolutely sure? Because <laughs> you just said there is to deny it. You have to affirm truth to deny it. Love requires truth and discernment. All right, so if you have your notes, these are the seven. Seven things about learning to love. Number one, abound in love. Verse nine, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. In context, I believe firmly he's referring to Jesus. Our love for Jesus must abound. But now notice our love must abound, number two, discerningly, with knowledge and discernment. True love is discerning. It's discriminating. True love sifts between what's good and what's bad, or it isn't actually love. In fact, discerning love can not only distinguish between right and wrong, it can distinguish between good, better, and best. Notice number three, discerning love distinguishes among good, better, and best, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. Some things are good, other things are better. A few things are even higher. Number four, true love leads to a pure life. Notice verse 10 continues, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Love should make your life more pure, morally speaking. Number five, love that bears the fruit of righteous living. Number 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. In the Bible, sometimes the word righteousness refers to our status as a Christian. Theologians call that justification. But other times it refers to our character or integrity. The Christian Standard Bible has a very good note on this verse. It writes this. This phrase, filled with the fruit of righteousness, expresses how a person attains purity and blamelessness. Righteousness is the character of those whom God declares righteous. Righteousness is the character of those whom God also declares righteous. Number six, love's fruit only comes from love's true root, Jesus Christ. Notice verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ. Do you know what scripture is saying here? You cannot be righteous if you don't know Jesus. You cannot live righteously if you don't love Jesus more and more. Whatever our culture calls love, if it is not in agreement with what Jesus thinks, it isn't actually lovely. The verse continues, what is the ultimate purpose of this kind of love? To the glory and praise of God. If you love Jesus, then you will love discerningly, and it will be startlingly countercultural. It will be startlingly unlike the way our culture tends to love. Now, there's so many implications we can make from here. Let me just make a couple, and these aren't on your notes, but these are just a few things that these verses, I think, would imply to us. One would be that true love discerns between right and wrong, and love loves what's right. 
Another would mean that all of us need to develop. Verse 9 said, I pray that your love will abound more and more. Here's what that means for everyone in the room. Everyone in the room, definitely, myself included, has room to grow in our discernment of how to love. Everyone has room to grow in our discernment of how to love well. True love is empowered only by Jesus and is fueled by Jesus who is altogether lovely. And also true love glorifies God because in our culture many counterfeit loves exist. Have you ever noticed that when Disney tells you to follow your heart, they don't let you fill in the blank? (laughs) Follow your heart. Love what you want to love. Oh, Walt, I want to love what Jesus loves. Oh, you can't do that. I didn't really mean follow your heart. I meant follow your heart within the parameters that I've determined for you. But see, true love loves the way Jesus loves, what he finds lovely. And therefore, it finds vile what he would find vile. True love is discerning. Partnership in the gospel is the theme of the book, and it's the theme of today's sermon. Praise God the gospel forms the church. Praise God the gospel unites the church. This morning, I want to ask you, do you know the one person who is altogether lovely? Do you know Jesus? If you don't, my prayer is that today, you'll put your faith in Him and you'll know peace within and peace with God through having a relationship with Him. My prayer for us as Christians is that we will love the way God loves, which will be very different from our culture, that we will have discerning love. But because this is a book about partnership in the gospel, I think there's an elephant in the room we have to address. In fact, he's a pink elephant wearing a rainbow afro. That's how big of an issue this is. How can we partner in the gospel in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic? Is that even possible? I believe it is. First, I wanna argue that it is from church history. Have you heard of the bubonic plague? The Black Death? It killed over a a third of Europe's population. It killed over 25 million people in the 14th century. And it returned in the 16th century. And in the 16th century, there was a monk named Martin Luther who had recently been brought to saving faith in Christ. And in 1527, he wrote a short pamphlet called Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. It's still available online. You can look at it and read it. In the pamphlet, Martin Luther struggles with a lot of the things we're struggling with though he did so before a lot of the scientific advancements that we now take for granted. In his pamphlet, he argues for prudence. Let me quote some of his statements. I shall ask God to mercifully protect us, then I shall fumigate. I love that. (laughs) He prays that God will help as they purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. He writes, I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed. He's talking about social distancing. He talks about looking after hospitals and, in fact, starting hospitals and looking after the staff who have to work with people who are sick. He writes, I will not be contaminated and infect others or cause their death as a result of my negligence. So Luther Luther rightly understood that love of neighbor means prudence and it means care and it means considerateness. But that's not all he wrote. He went on to say, if God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I will have done what he has expected of me. And therefore not be responsible for my own death or the death of others. But 
If my neighbor needs me, I will not avoid place or person. So Luther's saying, on the one hand, I want to be prudent and look after my neighbors. But on the other hand, if they need me and God wants to take me, then I'm okay with him taking me. He's balancing prudence and courage in a time of a pandemic. And in his kind, day 25 million people died. If we are convinced that many people are at risk of dying this, during this pandemic, then should we not as Christians who know that to be absent from this body is to be eternally somewhere forever, should we not most of all urgently have the Great Commission burning within us? This is not a time to pause partnership in the gospel. This is a time to increase partnership in the gospel. In fact, Jesus himself gave us this encouragement because in Matthew 28, when he gave the Great Commission, he said, go, therefore, and make disciples. Brothers and sisters, do you remember how he ended? And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here's some good news. Even if it's the end of the age, he's still with us. So let me give you two C's, two words that begin with the letter C that I believe should guide us in this time. And they both need to be qualified by the adjective prudent. But with prudence, here are my two C's. We need to partner in the gospel creatively, because there are many creative ways we can look out for neighbor and still spread the gospel. But also we need to have prudence that is courageous. Do you know where Paul is writing this letter from? Jail. And he wasn't in jail because he broke some traffic laws. He's in jail because he dared to say, Jesus is Lord, and he can be your savior if you turn from your sin and trust in him. You see, courage has always defined partnership in the gospel. It should be prudent courage that should look out for each other and not unnecessarily put anyone in harm's way, but it must be courage. Rooted in the gospel, this morning I pray that we will partner together in the gospel with prudence, but prudence that's creative and prudence that's courageous. Because brothers and sisters, the hour is urgent and the mission is critical. Let's close together in prayer this morning. Dear Father, God, I thank you that you know what it is like to make a choice that will be dangerous and sacrificial because one of our favorite verses is that you so love the world that you sent your son and you knew exactly what you were sending him into. In fact, Jesus, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way this cup could pass for me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Every person who's received the grace and mercy of Jesus should be praying something similar. Lord, we need to be prudent and careful and cautious, and we need to have a testimony that reflects that. But we also need to have a creativity and courage that shows that there is eternity beyond this vapor of a life. And those who step into eternity will either reap an eternal rejection of denying the goodness of God through Christ, or an eternal reward of receiving the grace and goodness of God through Christ. And Jesus told us, go. 
But thank you, he also said, I am with you always. So remind us that we are not alone. Remind us that we can partner in the gospel today and we can watch you do great and mighty things in this neighborhood among people who you will bring to saving faith because that's why we're here. And perhaps even this morning, someone is realizing that they don't know Jesus with the confidence that Paul is writing about. Help them today for the first time to hang their soul on the one anchored hook that can never fall, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And may they find the solid rock that never fails when everything else is sinking sand. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.